responsibility as people struggling for liberation is to tell our own story, to decolonize that history, to capture that history for ourselves and give it our interpretation. So we say that we have a history of struggle, a history of fighting back. Marvel has struggled with the Black Liberation Project for many years. And it's interesting how they go in and out of it and how they think of it and even how the X-Men series started off as a parable about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Congress is complicit! Congress is complicit! Congress is complicit! Congress is complicit! Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And on today's show, news and topics about real Africa and about the fantasy Africa on the screen these days. The 60th anniversary of the All African People's Conference was just celebrated around the world. Gerald Horn is back from the Pan African Film Festival in Los Angeles. And our favorite comic book nerd, Makani Temba, talks me down about Black Panther. All that and more is coming up, but first our headlines. Hundreds of students from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia marched and rallied outside the White House and the U.S. Capitol this week to call on lawmakers to enact sensible gun laws in the aftermath of the killing of 17 students in a high school in Parkland, Florida last week. On Tuesday, students staged a die-in and chanted B.S. to U.S. gun laws in front of the White House, and on Wednesday, D.C. rallies were matched by walkouts by students across the country the same day that Donald Trump met with parents and students inside the White House. Mark Barden, whose son was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut, was one of the voices of sanity at the White House, responding to a Trump suggestion to arm teachers. My heart absolutely breaks for the families of Parkland. Um, I have a sense of what you are going through now. I've been going through it for five years. This is my son, Daniel. He was seven years old when he was shot to death in his first grade classroom in Sandy Hook Elementary School just a little over five years ago. My wife, Jackie, could not be here today because she's a school teacher and she takes that job seriously and sent me as the ambassador. Jackie is a career educator and she will tell you she has spent over a decade in the Bronx. And she will tell you that school teachers have more than enough responsibilities right now than to have to have the awesome responsibility of lethal force to take a life. Thank you. Nobody wants to see a shootout in a school and a deranged sociopath on his way to commit an act of, of murder in a school with the outcome, knowing the outcome is going to be suicide, is not going to care if there's somebody there with a gun. That's their plan anyway. A national school walkout in action called March for Our Lives is being organized by students for March 24th. 
The D.C. mass meeting of the National Poor People's Campaign was held February 19th at Shiloh Baptist Church in Northwest D.C., where Don Shea Watkins was one of the younger speakers linking the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign to Voices of Millennials. Dear Average Joe, the one who constantly says, what can I do? It's not my issue, so what? That's them. You are powerful. It amuses me how this perpetuated system has you in this isolated prison, Willie Lynch letter division. See, how can I help others when I'm just barely winning? You have got to be kidding. Average Joe, don't you know you are royalty? A leader made in God's image claiming less than you were born to be? The world knows you. Society fears your strength and they know your knowledge will only liberate those around you. So they politically silence your voice. Well, Joe, I'm just glad I found you because I have a message for you. In a world full of supermen, you are the Black Panther. They search for immoral truth, but in God I found the answer, you see. This weekend, so many people went to the movie and idolized Wakanda, never realizing that we are Wakanda. Overflowing with every resource we need to fight systematic oppression, the war with economics, we have the resources to stop funding prisons more than we fund college. We are powerful people. And when one stars, we all starve. The injustice of one ripples to affect a million, and the things you don't stand for now will only affect your children. See. How can you separate yourself from the oppressor if you idly sit by and watch the oppressed? The sins of a man who knows better but never does better will soon catch up with him because it's easy to say don't drown, but it's another to teach to swim. The Bible says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the right of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and those in need. I'm not trying to preach a lifestyle change. I'm just merely planting the seed that our people are in need. And if knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave, then it's our job to go out and educate and fight to be the change. See, the most detrimental thing you can do in the fight for liberation is to isolate yourself from the problem. To not acknowledge and promote the need for community and joint efforts. See, I am Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, Parkland, Florida, the homeless vet single mother Sandra Bland and Cleve Browder, fighting like Miss Hamer, Ella Baker, Shirley Chisholm. See, I say their names and body their stories because truth be told, I am them. We have a call to defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed, to do just and right and to deliver from the hands of the oppressor. And if I'm not mistaken, God has never called the qualified, but has always qualified the call. So my message for you, Joe, is to stop being average when you were born to be great. Mediocracy is not acceptable in the pursuit of excellence, so wake up and pick up because our nation is depending on it. Sincerely, your sister in the fight for justice. Thank you. The National Poor People's Campaign is highlighting the human impact of policies that promote systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, and ecological devastation. The campaign is planned to gather in March in Selma, Alabama. Also, that 60th anniversary of the historic 1958 All-African People's Conference held in Accra, Ghana, was marked on Saturday, February 17th, here in D.C. and at other locations around the world. Speakers in D.C. included Maurice Carney, director of Friends of the Congo, and Ajamu Baraka, 
national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. The 1958 conference was the first major Pan-African gathering organized on African soil, and the theme was Hands Off Africa. Organizers for this anniversary called on the global African community to continue the fight for a free, liberated, and self-determined Africa. More from this anniversary later in the show. In culture and media, schools are not only the site of debate about guns, but about systematic inequality. Chantel James attended a talk at American University and filed this report. We caught up with Crystal M. Fleming at her recent talk as part of American University Sociology Department's speaker series. The room was packed as students, faculty, and community members took part in dynamic conversation. The author and professor spoke about the need to radically transform sociology from within in a provocative dialogue subtitled, Dismantling the Respectability Politics of White Supremacist Sociology. Here she speaks on the personal impetus behind her transformative work, which reaches beyond the halls of the academy. If I got to a, a point where I could no longer be quiet about these dynamics of oppression, and I have always also been inspired by other academics and also simply activists and community members who speak up. And I think it's only to the extent that those of us who study discrimination, study racism, and other forms of oppression, or experience it, or both, it's only to the extent that we actually share our experiences and knowledge and stories that we can break the taboo of sort of deny, you know, of, of talking about it at all, um, and you know, resist the denial that is so widespread in our society. There's a social justice connection to speaking up about oppression, and you don't have to, you know, give talks to do that. Even simply speaking up to people in your sphere of influence, your friends, your family. Your professors, you know, if you have them, we might need to learn from you. We all can speak up in multiple ways. Look for Fleming's latest book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide, forthcoming from Beacon Press in September of this year. From Tenleytown, this is Chantal James. For our final Culture and Media headline, I spoke to author and activist Makani Temba, chief strategist of Higher Ground Change Strategies, who wrote the foreword to the new book, Marvel's Black Panther, a comic book biography from Stan Lee to ta Coates by Todd Burroughs. Welcome back to the show, Makani. Well, I'm so glad to be here and really appreciate what y'all do. Well, for last week's show, I had just seen the movie the night before, and I just had some really quick kind of snap reactions and one was that the African diaspora is really not a factor. I really wanted the Black Panther to reach out to like the diaspora in London and DC and you know Melanesia or whatever and you know he has a closer link to the CIA than he does to the diaspora 
And then I was really kind of disappointed that it seemed like the African Americans were thrown under the character bus in service to this kind of fantasy African ideal with superpowers and, you know, superior technology and respectability. And I guess, you know, if I was more familiar with the comic book history, I would understand that that character, you know, was just the villain. But I just didn't like the way it kind of set up this fantasy African kingdom against uh, African-American character that was like the, the bad guy. You know, I didn't actually take it that way. I saw the film mostly as a metaphor. And I'm not saying that it didn't have its places where um, there's things that I wish might have been differently. But I saw it mostly as a metaphor for our work, our movement, who we are as black people. And I felt like we were every character. I didn't see Eric's character or what some people may call Killmonger as a villain. And um, I, I saw him as a part of who we are, right? And I thought he had some really important lines about liberation, about freedom, about, you know, what it means to embody by any means necessary. And so I actually thought of it, yeah, as a, as a metaphor, as a parable, really, for our work. What does it mean to leave folk behind, you know, in our work? How many times do we find ourselves as being Eric in the garden of the heart-shaped herb where we don't realize what a tradition means and we're so angry about our pain and our hurt that we feel like we get from black folk that we walk away from institutions and structures and traditions because they represent our pain. So I, I really, I didn't come away with it feeling like, oh, folks were pitted against each other. I felt like it was a lot of food for thought in terms of what folks represented in all of us. There's a part of each and every character in all of us. And I guess since I've had more time to think about it, even though I really enjoyed the, the imagery, uh, a lot is being said about, you know, the fact that, you know, we as black people can see ourselves in this kind of uh, very highly tech technological society that is beautiful, that the people look beautiful, that the scenery is beautiful, the place looks beautiful, and, and how important that is, especially for young people. So I'm not discounting that, but I'm just wondering if people haven't seen that before. But I guess I ultimately started to believe that when I considered the overall storyline that this was a very big budget, not attempt, but big budget narrative that links Africa and maybe all of the diaspora to the neoliberal project, the market, the sense of, you know, uh, Western technology or technology that is in service to not necessarily immediately like liberate us, but is in service to some idea of modernity or being like sophisticated. Even though there's this wonderful fantasy world, they use that fantasy world to kind of ignore like the real harsh realities of, you know, slavery, colonialization, and the current violence like that is occurring here domestically or on the continent through Africa. Yeah, no, I, I think I would agree with some of that, certainly the current day oppression. And I think part of the challenge in terms of the narrative was, and being familiar with the comic books, that's sort of the, the underlying tension of the story these last 50 years, 
mm-hmm. right? Where is Wakanda going to be in relationship to the rest of the continent? Because the way that they survived is essentially be, by being hidden from view and having the power to hide and go deep. So, again, a metaphor, right? A metaphor for what does it mean to be separate and to have the capacity to be completely African, and what do you come up with? And so in many ways, you think about that. I don't know if it's so much about modernity or Western tech as much as it is about the embracing of African brilliance as really the place where this stuff comes from, right? There's mm-hmm. so many things that we think of as technology today, like our number system and all kinds of things comes from Africa. And, and so in some ways, there's a part of this narrative that's about reclaiming our central place and creation of that knowledge. You know, that Africans went to Europe. They were the ones who made the Renaissance happen. Europe wouldn't have had a Renaissance had it not been for African teachers and, and African people going to Europe. And, I mean, the first chamber music was written by Africans and played in Europe. And so there's so much that um, if you take that narrative of Wakanda as a metaphor and you think of how much Africans have essentially created the technology that we call Western, I think that's important. But I think more importantly, to me it's more about, yes, there are, there are challenges around the narrative. It always has been. As a comic book fan... You know, I, I was so moved by the comic books as a kid because it was about a black world, right? You know, it's like mm-hmm. eight years old, seven years old. Oh, my God, that meant so much, especially growing up in Harlem, where we felt like we had a black world. But this is a black world where, where people were living out the full potential, it seemed like, of what we thought we would be when we were free. So for me, it was really important for my sort of revolutionary imagination as a child. And I think in many ways shaped me to be a lifelong activist, right, that idea. Now, let's recognize, yeah, this comic book started. It's not now written by white men, but that's how it started. And that Marvel has struggled with the Black Liberation Project for many years. And it's interesting how they go in and out of it and how they think of it and even how the X-Men series started off as a parable about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So they've been having a conversation of black liberation for more than 50 years, right? And so in some ways, you can't look at the Black Panther film outside of the context of this conversation Marvel's been having with blackness. I also find it interesting that Black Panther is really the only superhero of the Avengers that has been undefeated, that there's really no defeating him except his own people, right? And even then... And there's ways in which he rises. So as a black person, as a kid growing up, to have the most powerful superhero be the black one meant a lot to me. You know, I mean, as a, you know there were so many places you turn on television, you basically see, well, this, here's the black person. They're about to die. You know, um, <laughs> Black Panther was really the character that was not that way, the one that always won, that always overcame. And for me, that was really powerful. And I guess the last thing I would just say is that I saw the film in Atlanta, and it was amazing to watch these kids come out of the movie doing the chest pound and so excited about seeing dark-skinned people on the screen, about 
just so many things. And growing up, I always loved Sherry's character, um, to call a sister. That was like my first black nerd, right? That was like, <laughs> oh, that's me, right? And so I think that, that for those of us who kind of grew up reading and engaging with the story, to see the film, to be inside the film, to, to not necessarily think of Wakanda as a mimicry of Western civilization, but as the leading edge, and that whatever Western civilization is, it basically came out of the imagination of Africans, which is actually a, a, another part of the narrative. And yes, the panther in particular has a particular relationship with the United States state, which is complex. There's nothing about the storyline that's not complex, you know, I would say. Um, right. And that it challenges us. And it also speaks to us around, like, well, what are we talking about when we say nationalism, really? What are we talking about? When we're, when we're talking about our connection to the world, what does humanity look like? Are we here to heal everybody? Like, there's all of these really interesting questions. And even for the people who are organizers, it's like, so how are the ways we're both Eric and Takala and Nakia, right, and the Queen Mother? And you're like, like how we're holding all of that, and what does that mean? There's just so, there's a lot I'm still processing around the film, and that's as somebody who, like, reads the comics, reads the graphic novels, you know, and there's some twists in there, too, in terms of what some of the storylines have been. But I think bottom line is the net result is that I believe it's a film that has a lot for us to think about, some really powerful metaphors for us who are concerned with black liberation. And it's a really important cultural moment in the lives of black people, where black people who have not really spent a lot of time thinking about black liberation are talking about it as a result of this film. Well, I know that the debate will definitely go on. A lot of people are seeing the film as a kind of a other other type of metaphor, you know, between the the battle between you know Pan Africanism and and other types of of ideologies. At the same time, you know, we're going to actually see the phenomenon of the movie also go on in the coming weeks. You know, as it continues to rake in like millions of dollars, and I think that the discussion is good. So, absolutely, absolutely, and you know, as a black woman who's a feminist and left. You know, there's very few movies I watch and it satisfies every part of me, right? <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen that often. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it does all that, but I do, like, I agree with you. I think the conversation is important. And as organizers, our challenge is where do we meet our people and what kind of conversations do we have where they are? Okay. Well, on that note, we'll have to sign off. I'll run out of time, but I've been speaking with author and activist Makani Temba, chief strategist of Higher Ground Change Strategies, who wrote the foreword to the new book, Marvel's Black Panther, a comic book biography from Stan Lee to ta Coates by Todd Burroughs. Thank you for joining me today, Makani. Thank you so much.
If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Everum. And now we're going to turn to international news with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author and activist. Well, Gerald, this week, critical readers of popular culture continue to point out the historical, sociopolitical contradictions, some say dangers, of the new Black Panther movie in regards to Africa, and especially Africa and the CIA. But let's continue to talk about real news coming from the continent, starting with Ethiopia. Well, as you may have heard, the prime minister of Ethiopia is seeking to resign. And one of the things I think we need to think about more carefully and more deeply is the relationship between Egypt and Ethiopia. I think that if you look at those two countries, you'll quickly realize that stretching back for thousands of years, there has been a relationship between the two, and there continues to be a relationship between the two, not least because Cairo sees control of the Nile, particularly the Blue Nile, which is in the heart of Ethiopia in terms of its origins, means that Cairo feels that it has to control not only Ethiopia, but the Horn of Africa more generally as as Cairo sees it, as a product of national survival. And therefore, Egypt spends a lot of time seeking to destabilize Ethiopia. This has reached a new zenith because Ethiopia is now building a dam on the Nile, which Cairo sees as threatening its future stability insofar as Cairo feels that this will give Ethiopia more control over the Nile River. Uh, This has led to threats of war on the part of Egypt, that is to say, threatening Ethiopia with war. It's also brought other players into the neighborhood. I mean, for example, Turkey is playing an ever larger role in that part of Africa, not least in terms of being one of the few powers that is in place in Somalia, which is otherwise, as you know, a failed state, but also Turkey has serious problems with Egypt and therefore is aligning with Ethiopia. So this is a very serious situation that we're facing with regard to Egypt and Ethiopia. And I guess as a writer, one of the things that strikes me is that we really need a popular study of the 5,000-year history of the often frayed ties between Egypt and Ethiopia so that we can better understand and seek to influence the present moment. I don't want to leave the continent without us talking about what I consider the forgotten war in Yemen. More than 10,000 people have been killed and people are still starving there. And the Saudis continue to attack Yemen with assistance from the United States and Britain. Well, the news gets worse, I'm afraid. From Yemen. The latest news, of course, has been the epidemic of cholera, which, as you know, has the potential to spread like wildfire and kill thousands, if not tens of thousands, if we're not careful. Then there's this role of the Saudis, as you've just articulated. But what's striking there is that the Saudis helped to block an initiative by the United States to list. Pakistan on a so-called terrorist financing watch list. And this is taking place despite the fact that Saudi Arabia is supposedly one of the closest allies of the United States of America. 
but Saudi Arabia might be even closer to Pakistan. And so we see that this situation in that part of the world is becoming ever more complicated. But once again, as you've suggested, lost in the morass is the continuing suffering of the people of Yemen. I know that you attended the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles. And while Black Panther might be getting all this attention and raking in, what, $500 million at least so far, there are lots of films out of the continent that get very little exposure. Why don't you tell us about a few that you think are noteworthy? I saw this documentary, Bigger Than Africa, which is on the diaspora of the Yoruba people who, as you know, are cited mostly in what is now Nigeria. And this documentary deals with the Yoruba descendants in North America, in Cuba, and in Brazil. I I see this Yoruba documentary as part of a larger trend. Uh, For example, there is a recent book called The Akan Diaspora about this ethnic group that is cited mostly in Ghana and their descendants in the Americas as well. What I'm suggesting is that we're seeing much more of a particular focus on particular ethnic groups in the Americas, for example, in the United States. I mean, we already know, for example, that with regard to Stono's revolt in 1739 in South Carolina, that that bloody revolt against enslavement was mostly spearheaded by Africans with roots in Angola. I also saw this documentary, Burkinabe Rising, on Burkina Faso. It deals with the recent history of Burkina Faso, including the killing of Thomas Sankara, their charismatic leader some decades ago, allegedly by one of his closest comrades, who then was chased out of office in 2014. But this film deals with the music of this West African nation. It deals with the culture, the politics. It's quite remarkable. And I would say the same thing about another movie about uh, Burkina Faso, uh, Musa Faso, which deals with farmers and agriculturalists in this West African nation who are producing what is now called a superfood on this side of the Atlantic. I'm speaking of tiger nuts. Uh, which are sold in Whole Foods and other so-called natural food stores at a king's ransom, although the agriculturalists in Burkina Faso basically get a pittance. And so it was a kind of expose that is well worth seeing. You know, when you mention the superfood, I can't help but think about Black Panther and Wakanda, because there's this all this emphasis on the special properties and special materials and substances they have there, which power that country. So here you have a movie about a real place in Africa that's producing a real superfood. <laughs> but people won't actually know about this story. But I digress. So anyway, go ahead about the next documentary. Well, certainly the ironies abound. <laughs> but with regard to the giant is falling about the events in South Africa that led to the recent elevation to the presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa, what I found striking about this very critical analysis of the role of the African National Congress ruling party in Pretoria is that, like many analyses of South Africa, you would never know that there are 5 million Europeans in South Africa that they mostly lean to the right, that they play a major role in the politics of that particular country. And it's very curious that that oftentimes gets lost sight of. 
Now, I should also quickly mention a, a number of documentaries about uh, African-Americans, uh, one on Sammy Davis Jr., the talented singer, comic, musician, dancer, etc., which will probably eventually play on PBS, so your listeners yeah, will be able like to it. see that. Yeah. Uh, another documentary that you probably won't play on PBS but should is on Maynard Jackson, the former mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, the busiest airport in the world, as you know, is in Atlanta, Hartsville-Jackson Airport, and his name is on that airport for good reason. Another documentary about Woody King. It's called The King of Stage. I really hope that people get a chance to see this documentary because Woody King is probably the premier theater producer of the late 20th century and early 21st century, uh, responsible for the career trajectories of so many different stars. I think of Denzel Washington in the first place, but there are many more besides. Then there, I saw another documentary about, about hip-hop. There, there's a whole proliferation about the, the origins of hip-hop, and this one was called Word is Bond. But the critique I would make of many of these documentaries about hip-hop is they don't get into the political economy of this particular genre. That is to say, who's making the money, why do certain hip-hop artists get celebrity, and why are their lyrics trumpeted and other uh, hip-hop artists do not get celebrity? And so the whole political economy is something that's uh, sorely missing from many of these documentaries on hip-hop. And then finally, I saw this documentary, Back to Natural, about the question of hair of black people and the political and cultural and economic significance of our hair. Wow, another documentary on black hair? <laughs> yeah, but this one is much better than the Chris Rock documentary. Uh, they have more expert witnesses testifying as talking heads. They go to France to talk to black people there and to South Africa to talk to black people there about the question of hair. They go into court cases because, as you know, black women have had to file lawsuits in order to wear their hair in a certain way on the job in the United States of America. So I found that unlike these documentaries on hip-hop, which I was just critiquing, I found this one much more political and much more willing to engage the question of political economy in dealing with the sensitive question of hair. Just in general, uh, documentaries about real things and real people and real facts about the world around us have a tremendous difficulty getting exposure. Uh, and, and that becomes even more difficult when you're talking about an already marginalized people and us getting our stories out, you know, from our voice. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the writer and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. Oh
The 60th anniversary of the first Pan-African Congress held in Africa was just celebrated around the world. At a program in D.C., activist Ajamu Baraka was one of the speakers. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really a a pleasure and an honor to be here. I greet you by saying once again, what is the universal objective of our people? And that is power to the people power to the people. That is the message, that is the objective that came out of the 1958 conference. That, in fact, is the objective that we have to fight for today. One of the things that we have to remind ourselves of is that no matter how much power a state has, that power can be reversed. The real source of power, therefore, has to be with the people. That is the message of 1958. That is the message of today. When we look at 1958, we are not looking back, uh, as both of our presenters reminded us, just to talk about events in the past. But we understand that History is a site of struggle. History is a place where we contest the enemy. George Orwell had a very interesting quote. He said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. I'll say one more time. Who controls The past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. So those forces that are in place today attempt to justify their dominance and attempt to project themselves into the future by controlling how we see the past. Our responsibility as people struggling for liberation is to tell our own story, to decolonize that history, to capture that history for ourselves and give it our interpretation. So we say that we have a history of struggle, a history of fighting back. We've heard that history twice already. I'm not going to repeat parts of that. I'm only going to suggest, my brothers and sisters, that One of the themes that's been consistent in our struggles has been that our struggles have been international. International among ourselves and international in the context of being connected to the oppressed people around the world. That part of what defines our movement has in fact been that internationalism. And that is the part of our struggle that we have to recapture. That, I think, is one of the objectives of our gathering today, to talk about that international perspective, to remind ourselves that we are not only involved in struggle here in this country, 
But our struggles have always been interconnected fundamentally with African people around the world and connected fundamentally with all those who are oppressed and struggling for liberation against one common enemy. One common enemy that links all of us together. We name that enemy. We say that enemy is the white supremacist, colonial, capitalist patriarchy. We name the enemy so that we are not confused about what we need to be doing. So we're not confused about what the real objective should be. When you understand that we're up against an enemy that is structured, that is committed to maintaining its dominance globally, then you won't be confused by efforts to suggest to us that we can reform the structures, that we can make some little changes, that all we gotta do is, is get rid of a Trump and bring in a Democrat and everything will be all right. When you clear about who you are, when you clear about your enemy, then you understand your responsibility. And you understand your responsibility is not to reform this thing, but to destroy it, to transform it, to build something different because we can be different. And in the process of us changing ourselves, we also change the system. Not just for ourselves, but for those who come after us. So the message of 1958 is a message of struggle. It is a message of returning to the source, as our dear brother, Amakar Cabral frames it, that as important as state power can be, and it is, the real source and most consistent source of power is in fact the people. So one of the things we have to do to try to uh, intensify the struggle that we are involved in globally uh, is to uh, make sure that we strengthen the people make sure we're clear about what we have to fight against, and to be uh, vigilant against those new forms of oppression and exploitation. And one of the major challenges we have today when it comes to African people, when it comes to the African continent, is what we see now 60 years after 1958, and that is a new scramble for Africa a new scramble to try to control the destiny of our continent. And one of the major negative forces in this new struggle for Africa is in fact the United States of America. Now what that means, my friends, is that if the U.S. is involved in attempting to recolonize Africa, using military means and that main method of means it is using is in fact uh, the new Africa command because when we talk about recolonize let's make sure we clear though uh, because as we all know Africa has never been completely decolonized the Europeans have never left 
Kwame Nkrumah um, uh, reminded us in 1965 that uh, neo-colonialism was the highest, highest stage of imperialism. That was true then and is true today. That basically the forms of oppression uh, change, but in, in qualitative terms, the same kinds of relationships still exist. Okay? So the U.S. never left Africa. Uh, but today, because of the relative space that some of these states have on the African continent and their ability to um, leverage their space by connecting up with other powerful states in the world, like uh, the Chinese, what we have today now is the perception on the part of the U.S. that it needs to step in uh, and to make sure that the Chinese don't make more inroads into the African continent. Now, we're not going to get into, or maybe we can later, uh, the relative objectives and behavior of the Chinese in Africa. We can say this, though, that basically what we see is that the Chinese have been operating much differently than the other colonial European powers. That their footprint uh, is not the same as the foot, footprint of Western European colonialism. Uh, therefore, there's been some economic advancements and benefits in this relationship. And the consequence of that has been that there's been significant uh, influence uh, that the Chinese have on the African continent uh, and the regard that many people have toward uh, the Chinese. Now, what that means is that for the U.S., the way in which they operate, they've always kept their, their foot on the necks of Africa and Africans. And what they uh, are prepared to do to try to maintain their presence in the African continent is to utilize the only weapon really they have, really the only weapon they are choosing to utilize, and that is the weapon of militarism, the weapon of war. And so they have decided that what they're going to do is to engage in activities to destabilize various parts of the African continent, creating the pretext for more direct African more direct intervention into the continent in order to block the Chinese, in order to make sure that they keep access to some of the uh, most of the mineral wealth on that African continent. So to do that they have created various structures. One major structure they created is the U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM. Uh, through this command they have been able now to established relationships with 52 of the 54 African nations. Through this command and through various other kinds of programs, uh, we find that there is a uh, steady increase in the number of U.S. troops on the African continent. As a consequence of that steady increase, we see not, not stability, but instability. So what we have to do, my friends, as the citizens at the center of empire, and that's what we are, is to understand that as a consequence of our physical location, 
that brings certain responsibilities. And one major responsibility we have is to make sure that people in this country, and in particular African people, know what is happening on the African continent, and to build resistance to this recolonization. That is the spirit of internationalism. That is the spirit of revolutionary Pan-Africanism. The struggle for African liberation continues. And the target is not only the African continent, but all of the African spaces that now exist as a consequence of colonization, as a consequence of the slave trade. Now we have African people literally all over the world. We have 150 million Africans in the so-called Americas. So our responsibility is to make these links, to build more powerful oppositional structures, to recognize that our objective is not to reform, but to make revolution. That is the lesson of 1958. That is the lesson we have to relearn today, that our responsibility is to struggle, to stay clear, and to, in fact, uh, make revolution. That is the spirit of internationalism that we, that we acknowledge. Uh, it is important to acknowledge that as we are looking at the uh, anniversary of our dear brother uh, Malcolm X's assassination. Uh, that is the spirit that's always animated our struggles here uh, in this country. Now, we say that we are not only concerned about what is happening on the African continent, we understand that the kind of militarism we are fighting against is also linked to the militarism that directly impacts us in this country. We want to oppose the, uh, the war and death and militarism in Africa. But we have to recognize and understand that militarism in Africa, AFRICOM on the African continent is the, is the flip side of the same imperialist coin. On the other side of that coin is the 1033 program in the US. It is the domestic military that we call the police. So we're not talking about just having our focus externally. Part of our internationalist perspective, our internationalist consciousness is understanding those fundamental connections. That we have a fight that is external and internal. So my brothers and sisters, we have a task, a responsibility. It is to not only save ourselves, but also to save humanity. To recognize that we have the power to transform this society and in fact to transform the world. The only thing we have to do is make a commitment to in fact do that. We're on the right side of history. We understand that, we know that. Now all we have to do is organize ourselves and get on the right side of the fight. Thank you.
You have been listening to Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for Black Alliance for Peace, speaking February 17th in D.C. at a program marking the 60th anniversary of the first Pan-African Congress held in Accra, Ghana in 1958. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Makani Temba and Gerald Horn. Also, thanks to Chantel James for her reporting and production assistance. The music we played this hour included Panamunk by Danilo Perez and I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by Nina Simone, who would have been 85 on February 21st. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Please join me Sunday, February 25th, 5.30 p.m. at the Bus Boys and Poets Tacoma Park location, 225 Carroll Street in Northwest D.C. I'll be reading and signing my new book, Olokun of the Galaxy. Thank you for tuning in. Keep raising your voice. Peace.